Good morning, everyone. How are we doing today? I'm glad to see you this morning. Looking forward to our time in the Word of God. It's always a joy to be together as God's people, to celebrate the name of the Lord. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Jude. We're continuing our study in Jude, and I'm just going to let you know ahead of time. Um, so we have this message, and then we're going to have one more message. The problem is uh, the way that the schedule fell with some of the things that we're planning. It's not going to be until January 8th until we resume Jude after this week. So hopefully you'll remember everything when we get there. But um, So this morning, there is a shift in our attention in this book. You know, we've been saying for the last several weeks now... Uh, or we've not been saying, but we've been learning together about the uh, terrible description and characteristics of false teachers. And Jude has been really clear and emphatic on the dangerous um, makeup of these people that creep into the local church and are for their own gain and good, devouring and destroying uh, the people of God around them. Their attention then is to Uh, grab people's affections for their good and away from the Lord. And this morning, as we continue uh, our our study in Jude, in one sense, Jude has clearly stated his case. And it's almost like he's um, a, a prosecuting attorney. And he's given the evidence. He's walked us through the, the testimony of the Old Testament, through uh, some of the imagery and pictures that he paints. And now it's time, as the, the case has been uh, made, it's time to call us to action. He's shifting our attention to what we are to do. We know how deceitful they are, and now it's time for us to do something. Coupled in this warning is the idea that, that Judas also shifting our attention to a term that he applies to those who are in the faith. And this is a term that we talked about in the beginning of our study in Jude, but it's found a couple times in our passage this morning. And twice in this passage, Jude calls out to the beloved, to the beloved of God. Now, that that is the contrast because for weeks upon weeks in this study, as we've been looking at the false teachers, Judas had nothing nice to say about them. He has been very clear about his concern of the heresy and the trouble and the damage that they caused to the local assembly of believers. But now we know that Jude is grabbing our attention and he says, Beloved, I want you to be aware of these things and I call you to action. And if you remember from that first message in Jude, this term beloved refers to the dear ones of God. We read this in verse 1. To those who are called beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Then in verse 3, beloved, why I was making every effort to write to you. The attention is on those who are in Christ. To those who have received Jesus Christ by faith, those are the ones who are beloved by God. Church, in Christ, we are the beloved of God. As the beloved of God, we are to press on and to contend for the faith. And yet the testimony of the New Testament is that those who are beloved by God don't get a free pass. And what I mean by that is that we don't get a free pass when it comes to trouble and persecution. The beloved of God, those who are dear to God, don't get this universal, unlimited protection from a sovereign God who says, everything's going to be perfect now in this world. We are not given that promise. In fact, we see that the Son, Jesus, He was persecuted. He was executed at the hands of His enemies. And the Father said this of the Son in Matthew 17, verse 5. This is the Mount of Transfiguration. 
While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Beloved, you get the real sense that Jude is tying connections together. And he is saying, listen, you dear ones of God need to be aware. And, and he is even thinking as he's writing to these dear ones that they're not facing an easy situation. They're not facing a comfortable time. They're not just walking through these seasons of life thinking everything's great and wonderful. The false teachers have come in and in a very real sense... These beloved are facing persecution, and Jude is writing to encourage them. He's exhorting them to dig in and to contend for the faith. And he ties these connections together saying, listen, if the Son is the beloved of God, and He was persecuted, and you are the beloved of God, you will face persecution because we're not greater than the Son. And in a very real sense... He's encouraging encouraging them because he knows that these false teachers speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. And that's where we left off in verse 16. They speak in such a way to make you feel good, but not just even for yourself, for their own gain. They build armies of people around them by flattering them. But it's not for the good of God. It's not for the good of their faith. It's for the good of the false teacher's own gain. They want to seek an advantage. And likely through their arrogant teaching, they were tempting believers to abandon their faith in Jesus. And they were calling them to some crazy, legalistic, sensualistic kind of way of life. But persecution has been a part of the church since its inception. The beloved are persecuted because this isn't our home. There's an early important historical document that kind of speaks to the persecution of the early church. It comes from the early 2nd century. And what I mean by that is uh, between 111 and 113 AD, some 45 years after Jude wrote this letter, there is a historical document that has been preserved um, that speaks into the trouble, at least some of the trouble that the early church was facing as they were following Jesus in a world that was uh, surely against following the Lord. They lived in a Roman world where the Romans had gods to everything. And Caesar himself was a god. And so we read this early 2nd century document. It's, it's a conversation. It's a series of letters. And it's, it's amazing that it's been preserved this long. <clears throat> it's between two men, Pliny the Younger and Trajan. And so Pliny the Younger was a governor of Pontus and Bithynia between 111 and 113 A.D., And it's interesting because these two areas, Pontus and Bithynia, are two two of the areas in Asia Minor that Peter writes 1 Peter to, to the aliens that are scattered, to those who were of the faith that were scattered in these regions. There was Pliny the Younger, who was a Roman governor of this region, and he wrote a set of exchanges to the emperor of Rome named Trajan. And he's writing to the emperor about the problem of the Christians. And this is some of their dialogue. I'm not going to read it all, but I want you to see some of the excerpts of this. Pliny writes to Emperor Trajan. He says, It is my practice, my lord, to refer to you in all matters concerning which I am in doubt. For who can give better guidance in my hesitation or inform my ignorance? I have never participated in trials of Christians. I therefore do not know what offenses it is the practice to punish or investigate or and to what extent. And I have not and I have been not a little hesitant as to whether there should be any distinction or on account of age, or no difference between the very young and the more mature, whether pardon is to be granted for repentance or Or if a man has been a Christian, it does him no good to have ceased to be one. 
whether the name itself, even without offenses, or only the offenses associated with the name are to be punished. So let me just pause right there. He's writing to the the Roman emperor, and he's saying, I need some help because I'm hearing about this group of people called Christians, and I don't know how to progress in my observations of them. And he even says, and he uses a word that we use in the Bible, right? He says, even if they repent of being a Christian, I don't know what to do with them. And so he's writing for counsel. He goes on and he says, Meanwhile, in the case of those who were denounced to me as Christians, I have observed the following procedure. I interrogated these as to whether they are Christians. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second and a third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who, who persisted, I ordered executed. For I had no doubt that whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness, and inflexible obstinacy surely deserved to be punished. He goes on. Those who denied that they were, were or had been Christians, when they invoked the gods and words dictated by me, offered prayer with incense and wine to your image, which I had ordered to be brought for this purpose together with statutes of the gods, and moreover cursed Christ, None of which those who are really Christians, it is said, can be forced to do these, I thought, should be discharged. So here's the thing, right? Let's just stop here and just think about what he's saying. To those who I asked who were Christians, and they said yes. And I I asked a second time, and they said yes. And I persecuted them. And I asked again, and they said yes. I ordered to be executed. And then there was another group, those who he called in front and said, are you a Christian? And they said, no, I used to be, but not now. And in the face of this governor who stands on behalf of the Roman emperor, what did he do? Well, in this conversation, he witnessed these Christians, these professing Christians that are now not professing their faith. They've offered worship. Wine to the gods, offerings, using the gods of Rome in their conversation. And what did Pliny do? He discharged them. And so he says one more thing to the emperor. He says, I therefore postponed the investigation and hastened to consult you, for the matter seemed to me to warrant consulting you, especially because of the number involved. For many persons of every age, every rank, and also of both sexes are and will be endangered. For the contagion of this superstition has spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and farms. The contagion of the superstition. I love that phrase. What does that tell me about the gospel? Man, it goes out. And it messes things up. And to the unbeliever, they get concerned. Trajan responds to Pliny. This is what the emperor says. You observed proper procedure, my dear Pliny, in sifting the cases of those who had been denounced to you as Christians. For it is not possible to lay down any general rule to serve as a kind of fixed standard They are not to be sought out. If they are denounced and proved guilty, they are to be punished with this reservation, that whoever denies that he is a Christian and really proves it, that is, by worshiping our gods, even though he was under suspicion in the past, shall obtain pardon through repentance. So what do we see in this conversation between these two leaders in the Roman Empire just 40 years from the time that Jude is writing these words? Well, we see in a a very real sense that trouble is promised to those who are of the faith. And what we do see is that even in the early church, the false teachers that were creeping in were distracting and devouring people from the true faith. And when charges were brought up, those people stood before the Caesar and they had to give an account. And many who were under the, the influence and pressure of false teachers were given a way to say, you know what, it's not too bad. I mean, I don't really need to follow God the way that his scriptures say because my life's on the line. 
And they forsook the Lord so that they could live more on this earth. And yet Jude exhorts us to the great gift that God provides in His Word. He gives us the ministry of His Word and He gives us the promise of His presence. And church, there is a beloved in heaven right now that we will meet that were the persecuted in Rome. The very people that Pliny ordered executed. And they're the very people that when they breathed their last in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus said, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Church, this is very important for us to understand and apply because we are living in a world where, if you're not already aware, there's a target on our back. And what are we going to do? And coupled with that is the pressure from false teaching that says, listen, you can believe in God, but you don't have to believe the way the Scriptures say. There's new teachings. There's new information. There are new feelings to examine. What are we going to do? And so Jude gives us some exhortations. The first one is found in verses 17 through 19. Jude says this, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you in the last times there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. The first exhortation that Jude gives the beloved is this, remember the words. Remember the words. We're called to remember. Jude's book has been littered with a call to remember. Remember what the Old Testament said. Remember what the examples of the angels and and Cain and Korah and Balaam and Remember Israel as they wandered in the wilderness. And remember, remember, remember. And now Jude says to us, remember the words that have been spoken. Now very specifically, when he calls us to remember the words of the apostles, he goes on and he, he zeroes in and he says, listen, the apostles have been telling us, they've been warning us all throughout their ministry of what? In the last time, there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. And these are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. Paul and Peter and John have been faithful as apostles. And we have their written warnings in the scriptures, whether it's in Acts 20 or 1 Timothy 4 or 2 Timothy 3 or 2 Peter 2 and 2 John. We have the apostles warning and, and, and calling our attention that in the latter times, which is now, not just today in the year 2022, but in the year of 50 A.D., 60 A.D., 70 A.D., when these letters were written, that in the last time, false teachers are going to come. And when they come, their only desire is to destroy your faith. In fact, they are agents of Satan. And he is wanting to destroy the community of faith. And what does Jude say? Remember their words. We've been warned 2 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4, which is a parallel passage to what we read here in Jude. It says this, Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. Well, that sounds a lot like what we've been reading in Jude. And he goes on, and Peter writes and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. That the mockers are coming, the false teachers. Right? What is one of the markers of a false teacher according to what Peter writes here? There are people that say, eh, God's not really going to return. I mean, he says, where's the promise of his coming? And don't you hear that from skeptics? I mean, we're a people that believe the Lord is returning very clearly to gather his church to be with him. And they look at us and they say, what are you holding on to? He's not coming. 
There's no evidence that he's coming. And yet Paul wrote to Titus in Titus 2 that the promise of Jesus is coming is our blessed hope. It's what we hold on to. It's our assurance and promise of that there are better days coming. These false teachers follow after their own ungodly lusts. It's all about their passions. It's all about their flesh. They build ministries and kingdoms unto themselves that is all about feeling good and standing out. They also cause divisions. They destroy the unity of the fellowship of the saints. Listen, false teachers know that their teaching is false. And so what do they do? They cause divisiveness in the family of God. Because when they're trying to distract people and pull people away from the true knowledge of the gospel, what are they doing? They plant suspicion in the people that are listening to them and says, listen, I'm telling you these things are true, but when you go and tell someone else that they're true, they're going to say that it's a lie. They cause divisions. They, they pit one side against another. They turn believer against believer because if they know that they are pressed to what they are teaching, they know that it will not stand. I mean, why do you think Satan is so actively using false teaching today? It's to divide the body of Christ. It's to cause factions. It's to cause divisions. And as a pastor and as our elders are part of the spiritual leadership, we've been given the task to protect the purity of the doctrine of God. We are to be the gatekeepers of what is taught. And that is why, as leadership, we spend a lot of time examining what is being taught and understanding what the Scriptures teach so that what we present to you is as clear to the biblical account as we can give it to you. And we don't mess around with, you know, those new fad things that says, oh, you know, everyone seems to be listening to this. Well, let's try it here. Like there's just something beautifully simple about the word of God. And we preach it faithfully. And we preach Christ crucified as the only way that we can come into an understanding of who Jesus is. False teachers cause divisions. They tear down. They do it through division, through fables, through myths, through legalism, through religion. I mean, they have many tactics. They do it through doubt, and they do it through fear. And Jude says they are devoid of the Spirit. They are devoid. That word devoid simply means not. They do not have the Spirit. Listen, false teachers do not have the Holy Spirit. Do not. They are not of the Spirit. There's nothing in them that is under the power or control of the Holy Spirit. They're charlatans. They put on this grandiose exercise, acting spiritual. In all reality, they are devoid of the Holy Spirit. And we know that every true born-again person has the Holy Spirit of God. We do. It's emphatic. The Holy Spirit is given to us at the moment that we trust in Jesus Christ. At the moment. It's not something that we're baptized into later. It's not something when we exercise certain spiritual gifts that we're given the Holy Spirit. At the moment that we trust in Jesus Christ, God says to you, so that you know that you will make it to the end and be glorified and transformed into the image of my Son, I'm going to give you what you need to help you right now. Here is my Spirit. And Jesus promised that. He says, when I go, the Helper will come. In verses 20, or let me, let me say this, concerning one more thing about the words of the apostles, it's not just the direct warning of in the last times, false teachers are going to come. I also think that when Jude calls us to remember the words of the apostles, he's calling us to remember this. Church, what is going to keep you from false teaching? This. And why do I say that? Because when they teach, you're going to be able to say, oh, you know what? That's not found in this. 
And what is this? Well, the last part of this, the New Testament, are the words of the apostles. And as you read the New Testament in the words of the apostles, what do you see as the foundation of their words? The rest of the scriptures, the Old Testament, as they built the foundation of the reality of who Jesus is on what has already been communicated to us through the promises of the Old Testament. When Jude says, remember the words of the apostles, he is saying to us, remember the word of God. D.L. Moody said this, the Bible will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the Bible. And the more you're in the Word of God, the more you're going to be able to follow the voice of God in your life. The more that you're going to know the will of God. And the more the alarms are going to go off through the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. When you hear teachings that do not align with this Word, you'll be able to say, that's right. That's not in the Word of God. That is a lie. And church, we have no excuse. We really don't. I don't know how many Bibles you own. But if you have a smartphone, you have access to pretty much every translation that has ever been translated. Ange, what's the name of the Bible Gateway? So we were talking this week uh, with some folks, and there's a website. It's called Bible Gateway. You can go on Bible Gateway, type in what passage, and literally every translation that there is, you can find a translation for that verse. Like, we have no excuse to bury our heads in the sand and say, eh, it's too hard. Listen, God's word has never been meant to be hard for us to know. He's clearly communicated to us who he is. And so the exhortation to remember is of critical importance. In verses 20 and 21, Jude says, But you, beloved building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. So the first thing I want you to see here is that there is only one imperative in verses 20 and 21. And what I mean by imperative, it's the command. It's the to do something. What is the to do? It's found in verse 21. The imperative for the beloved is to keep yourselves in the love of God. That is the call for the believer. Keep yourselves in the love of God. And we'll talk about what that means in a few minutes. But I want you to see what Jude is saying here. He's calling us to action and he says, number one, keep yourself in the love of God. And number two, this is how you do it. And that's where everything else fits in in verses 20 and 21. So to keep ourselves in the love of God... Number one, build yourselves up in the most holy faith. But you, beloved, build yourself up in the most holy faith. What is the faith? It's what Jude said in verse 3. It's the faith that has been handed down once and for all to all. It's settled. We don't add to it. We don't decide what is allowed and what can go. We have the holy faith handed down once and for all. And we are to build ourselves up in this most holy faith that is found in Jesus Christ. We are to strengthen ourselves in the truth of God's word. We are to be a people of sound doctrine and practice. We are to be growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, the reason why so many people get duped by false teachers is because they have failed to build their lives on the most holy faith of the sound words that have been handed down once and for all. I would say this, for, for every person that has been persuaded by false teaching, it is because they have failed to examine the faith, the true faith of Jesus Christ as found in the word of God. This exhortation to build up is in the present tense. And so what does that mean? It means continue to build yourself up all the time. Always be building yourself up in the faith. Always. Listen, there's no rest in the faith. We don't, we don't get any days off. Right? 
I'd like to say I've worked out before. That doesn't happen. I I have grand aspirations about it. But listen, like I I go into every year thinking, this is the year I'm going to turn it around. And it never happens. But if I were to do it, I'd probably say, you know, after a while, I'd say, you know what, I'm going to take a day off. And the danger is probably one day will turn into two, which will turn into where where I am right now. But in the faith, there's no days off. There's no breaks. There's no cause to take a nap or to be asleep or to think, yeah, I'll get to it tomorrow. I'll pick it back up. And this is why sometimes it seems overwhelming to be a Christian, right? I mean, it does. Because you go through your day and you think, oh my gosh, this like totally changes everything. And I always have to be aware of it. Like, when is there time for me? Well, here's the great news. It's not about you. It's all about him. And there's no days off because every day is a wonderful opportunity for us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And he is so kind and patient to meet us where we are and to give us what we need for the day. But there's no days off. We are always to be about building ourselves up in the most holy faith. The building up of a strong and stable Christian is an ongoing process. It's called sanctification. And we do it to protect ourselves from the attacks of Satan who is littering our world with false teaching. Radio Bible teacher J. Vernon McGee, who's now home with the Lord, said this. He said, It is my conviction that since God gave us 66 books, he meant that we are to study all 66 books not just John 3 and other favorite passages. We study all the books and all the words because all of them are life to us. Beloved, we are to build ourselves up and to pray in the Holy Spirit. Do you see the contrast with verse 19 and what he said about the false teachers? They are devoid of the Spirit. They have no Holy Spirit. There's no spirit working in in them that comes from God. But we, beloved, are to pray at all times in the Holy Spirit. The beloved of God have the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? To pray in the Holy Spirit. Well, I think it very simply means that we pray an element of His influence. And you might say, okay, that still sounds kind of hard to understand. It means this, very simply. When you pray, God's Spirit is praying with you. And you trust that the Holy Spirit is praying on your behalf as you cry out to God for Him to grow you in the image of His Son. We see this in Ephesians 6.18. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Paul says, be on the alert. We live in a time where we're being attacked. Ephesians 6 is the passage about putting on the full armor of God because there are fiery arrows being flung at us from our adversary, Satan. And he says, put on the armor And pray at all times in the Holy Spirit. And then Paul teaches in Romans 8. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So let me just pause there with verse 26. If you haven't yet, you may want to highlight and wear out verse 26 in your Bible. As a memory verse, as something that you hold on to in your faith. Because here is what I know as I have met with people who love Jesus. They have said often, Pastor, I wish my prayer life was better. I wish I knew what to pray. I wish I knew how to pray. I wish my, my prayer life was stronger. And we go through life and we think that our prayer life has to be some kind of individualistic pursuit. That as we grow in prayer, we're growing it better in the way that we say things. But you know what I have found in prayer? Is that often when I'm praying, I don't have any words. I don't. I mean, I go through periods of of life where 
I am just unsure of how to even say what my heart is feeling. And there is good news in Romans 8.26 for those who are of the faith. Because as you pray and bow your heart to heaven's throne, God has given you help. The Holy Spirit prays for us and helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we should. So if you're a believer today that is struggling in your prayer life and you're just like, man, I just don't know what to say. I get all twisted in my words. I, I, and it, it becomes an obstacle. Can I just give you assurance today? God doesn't care about the content of what you say and being grandiose with all these definitions and words like you're preaching Bible verses to him. He wants your heart. And as you bow your heart to him, and, he, and you're honest in sincerity, the Holy Spirit is praying on your behalf. And sometimes the best prayer that you can offer is the prayer that is just silently waiting for God to work. Now you might say, well, Jesus taught us to pray and he gave us words in the Lord's Prayer. Okay, pray that and believe it. That's true too. But what I'm saying is for many of us, we just get overwhelmed with prayer. And Paul is saying, you have everything that you need to succeed in your prayer life. You have the Holy Spirit. Listen, church. Well, let me read verse 27. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The he is Jesus. He intercedes for us. He stands on our behalf. He knows the Holy Spirit because they're in the Godhead. This is the Trinity. And he prays on our behalf. But church, we need to know that we are able to live the life God wants us to live, not because you can do it on your own, but because the Holy Spirit is inside of you. Beloved, you have all that you need to live a life pleasing to the Lord. You have every resource you need, and you got it at the moment that you trusted in Jesus Christ. That is why the scripture warns us to not quench the Holy Spirit. Because we have God's Spirit, we are to live in such a way that we're open to the Spirit's moving and power in our lives. But when we live in the flesh and we do the things that we want to do and we hear the warnings and we know the Word of God and we push it aside and we say, another day, another day, another day, we quench the power of the Spirit in our lives. We put our hands over His mouth speaking in our lives. And there comes a point when you can quench the Holy Spirit to the point where you're not going to hear his voice. It's, it's time for us to live in such a way that we know that we have everything that we need to live a life pleasing to the Lord. God's word directs and his spirit empowers. Again, Jude calls us to the command to keep ourselves in the love of God. And like I said, this is the imperative. As we build ourselves up in the holy faith, as we pray in the Spirit, we're to keep ourselves in the love of God. Beloved, Jesus said in John 14, verse 15, these very simple words, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. When Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God, This is how you do it. Keep his word. And you might say, Pastor, I'm here because I realized I'm not very good at keeping his word. But as you grow, as you pray in the spirit, as you use the the, um, full effect of the gift of the Holy Spirit in your life, you will grow in your ability to keep God's word. Because some of you come to this place, right, in your spiritual walk where you're like, 
man, why do I still struggle with these habits? Why do I still struggle with these attitudes? Why do I still struggle with these actions? Why doesn't God just take it all away? Do you ever think that? Come on, you have. It's like, why doesn't it just go away when I say yes to Jesus? It's because you have an old nature still trying to live even though you've been given a new spirit and the new nature that you have in Jesus Christ. And you can find victory because victory is found in a risen Savior. And you can be assured of victory over the devices of your flesh because you have what you need in the Holy Spirit. And as God's Spirit is working in your life, he will teach you the Word of God because He is our teacher. And as you learn the Word of God and apply the Word of God and trust the Word of God in your life, you are kept in the love of God. It's not very hard. Like, we make it a lot harder than it needs to be. Open God's Word. And as you open God's Word, ask His Spirit to teach you. And as he teaches you, and as you apply it, you are able to keep yourself in the love of God. We maintain our love for God by keeping his word. We maintain our love for God by keeping his word. I mean, we often get it backwards, right? We want to receive God's love by what we do. That's called works. That's religion. Jude says, no, you maintain it. You don't receive it because of what you do. I came across an illustration this week that I hope helps you to understand what it means to keep yourselves in the love of God. Uh, It's uh, from a time in America before we were a country. Um, It was in the 1730s through the 1770s. Um, It was what was referred to in church history as the Great Awakening. And during the Great Awakening in the American colonies, there was this new revival to gospel preaching and gospel living. Because as people came over from uh, um, a British empire that was about this form of religion that was all about the king and all of that, people broke away and they set off in ships to form a new life. Freedom, freedom to worship God the way the scriptures teach. And there were men and women that were involved in a revival that took place in the British colonies of America in the 1730s through the 70s. And one of those was George Whitfield. I don't know if you've ever heard of George Whitfield, um, faithful gospel preacher. He died when he was 54 years old. And he suffered much for the sake of the gospel. And yet, he was always intent on finishing well and keeping himself in the love of God. Listen to how he spent the last days of his life. And this is recorded in his biography. It reads, After preaching for a week in the Portland, Maine area, Whitfield was again forced to recognize that he was too unwell to proceed. Accordingly, he once more turned southward to begin as he thought the long journey back to Georgia, where he was from. The date was Saturday, September 29th, 1770. By noon of that day, he reached the town of Exeter. Exeter is just south of Portland. He had not planned to preach there, but on arriving, found he could not refrain from doing so. That is, an outdoor platform had been erected, and a large company of people had gathered and were waiting for, to hear him. And Whitfield's sermon that day was two hours in length. Man, I aspire to be George Whitfield. <laughs> it goes on. Following this tremendous effort, Whitfield continued his journey and late that afternoon arrived at Newburyport, Massachusetts. 
The street in front of the house had filled with people, and as he began to make his way up the stairs, several of them were at the door begging him to preach. Unwilling, despite his weariness, he stood on the landing, halfway up the stairs, candle in hand, preaching Christ. He was soon greatly alive to his subject and becoming heedless of time as he continued to speak till finally the candle flickered, burned itself out, and died away. That dying flame and that burned out candle were representative that evening of the man himself and of his life. Whitfield went up to his room and died that very night. He had kept himself in the love of God. He kept himself all the way until death. His message never changed. He kept the faith. He never changed, never accommodated, never bent on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he never denied the Lord. Church, we keep ourselves in the love of God as we wait anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. That's what Jude writes here at the end of verse 21. We anxiously wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. We are to live life longing for the return of Jesus. We wait anxiously. We ready ourselves waiting. You know what it means to wait anxiously, right? You do. Some of you young people in this room are waiting anxiously for Christmas. And as the days get closer, you will be ever more anxious for Christmas morning. Like, is it ever going to get here? But we know what it's like, right? If you, if you have plans with someone and they say, hey, I'll come by and pick you up. I'll be there at 5 o'clock. If you're like me, around 4.40, you start looking out the window. Some, somehow, miraculously, they're going to show up early. And then you look two minutes later. And then you open the door and you look down the road. Right? You wait anxiously for the person to arrive. And that is what we are to be as we wait for the Lord's return. Church, we should long for nothing else except to see Jesus Christ return. I don't know what you're planning for in your life. Some of you are like, man, I'm just trying to make it to the weekend. Seriously. I just want to be able to raise my kids and send them off. I just want to be able to get to a place where I can have this in my life so that I can enjoy things better. I just want to make it to retirement, right? And we just keep kicking the can down the road. When for every person that knows who Jesus Christ is, our number one affection should be to wait anxiously for him to come and gather us home. I'm not saying it's wrong to have dreams and passions, but are you waiting anxiously for the return of Jesus Christ? We only have a short time to wait before we see Jesus, and we're called to remain faithful to him. Now, the final two words in this passage become an exhortation to be aware of those around us, and I just want to touch on this for a minute. Jude writes, And have mercy on some who are doubting, save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. So what is Jude saying here? Beloved, as you maintain yourself in the love of God, as you are growing in the knowledge of who Jesus is, as you live your life empowered by the Holy Spirit, building your life on the word of God, be aware of those around you. Why? Because those around you might be suffering under the tyranny of false teaching. That's what these verses are. It's a warning to be awakened to those around you so that you can have a godly influence on them and rescue them. This is what he's saying. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Listen, there might be people sitting right next to you that are doubting their faith this morning. They're just kind of hanging on. They hear these words, they sing the songs, and deep down they're wondering, is this true? Is this real? Jude doesn't say, as you find out about them, that you cast them away, but he says to us, have mercy on some who are doubting. 
within the context of what he's saying here, there are some that are listening to false teaching. And we need to be in their lives in such a way with the power of the true gospel that we witness to them and encourage them. Have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them from the fire. The same fire that is set for those who are false teachers that have been prepared beforehand. Listen, if someone listens to a false teacher to the point where they start believing by faith what they're saying, they deny the gospel and they are set apart for judgment. Jude says, save others. Plead with them. Show them the scriptures. Implore with them the error of their ways. That's what's so good about the word of God and being a minister of the word of God. I don't have to make anything up. As I meet with people and talk with people, we just read the scriptures and say, what did God say? And we leave it there. And the, the, the joy of it is as people respond to the word of God by faith, we are able to snatch them out of the fire, out of judgment. But then Jude gives a warning. And he says, And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. What he says is there are some people that are so corrupted by the peril of false teaching. You should avoid any contact with these people with fear that even their garment would stain you. This is a big deal. We have to be careful. And as we're careful, we should be moved with compassion. Beloved, we have much to contend for. We have much to contend for. Do you see the progression in this letter? Church, I hope you see it. The false teaching will bankrupt your soul. And as you stay close to the Lord by keeping yourself in His love, as you listen to the Word, as you pray earnestly, and as you wait for the return of Jesus, keep watch for each other. That we wouldn't be swayed by any false truth that is not of the Lord. We have a great challenge ahead of us, church. But we have a great God that will help us. Let's pray.